Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. Part of the reason that, that maybe we haven't done much about it is that so many of us benefit from the type of work these people are doing that we have a hard time looking at ourselves and trying to do something to, to make these people's lives better and to really treat them as the essential workers that they are. The systems that were happening before COVID affected us were working for a lot of people. And those folks are very invested in returning to business as usual. You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook, the first tenured Black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, the Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. The aim of this podcast is to expand upon the work of the Cook Center through continuing crucial conversations that further our research and programming. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke, who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. Today, we're focused on chapter one, how systemic racism and pre-existing conditions contributed to COVID-19 disparities for Black Americans, written by Dr. Melissa Scott, Dr. Paul Robbins, and Duke's Dr. Keisha Bentley-Edwards. Joining me here today to discuss the chapter are Dr. Robbins and Dr. Bentley-Edwards. Dr. Robbins is an assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at Purdue University. And Dr. Bentley-Edwards is an associate professor at Duke University and developmental psychologist who uses a cultural lens to understand social, emotional, and academic outcomes. Here's Dr. Bentley-Edwards. So when we're talking about systemic racism, most times we think about individual slights or harms that people may cause when we talk about racism, Uh, but that's more on the individual level. But systemic racism, or sometimes it's called structural racism or, or institutionalized racism, we're talking about policies, practices, and norms. And these can be uh, in a health system, a school, or state, local politics, national politics, Um, as well as what these norms are, the ways that we're used to doing things that can cause harm based off of race, 
um, or ethnicity, or they also can provide benefits to people based off of race and ethnicity. And I think that's the part that folks don't always think about how racism causes harm, but it causes harm by providing benefits to someone else. Mm. I kind of wanted to jump in on that as well, because I think as we're as we're thinking about these things, people often think of racism as like an act that you intentionally perpetrate and that sort of thing. And what we would suggest is that uh, there are times where systems and systemic racism are intentional and people are really going out of their way to make sure that people from certain groups don't get certain advantages and pe- and some people do get advantages. And in other instances, it's, it's not really intentional, but what we see are outcomes that work uh, just as well or just as poorly as if it was intentional. And I think that that's something to, to factor in as well with uh, systemic racism. Exactly. And thinking about the norms, and I'm glad you brought that up, is that it's what we think is acceptable or, or the ways that things that we're used to it being. Mm. And, and when uh, we feel like there's a time to intervene and do something about it or not, um, based off of race and who things affect. And I think that's a big part of what this book chapter is about and the book overall is about, is uh, when we decide to help and when we decide to let things just Let's see how things work out. Oh, I realized I didn't define uh, social determinants of health. Yeah, go ahead. So when we're talking about social determinants of health, we're talking about all the different things that can affect you from the individual level. So the behaviors and what are the things that you interact with in your everyday life, all the way to the policies that can affect your life. So whether or not you might be um, on state social services or local services, all these different things that can affect your life and your health that may not necessarily be biological. So when we're talking about social determinants, it's really fitting when we're talking about racial differences because we're talking about race as a social construct. We're not talking about race as a biological construct. And if you understand that race is something that we put on, that society has put on you, you can understand how social determinants can have um, disparate or differing impacts on people based off of race because society interacts with Black people, white people, Latinos, and Native Americans and Asian Americans differently. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Keisha on that. And, and I'd also like to add that these social factors are, are known for consistently predicting health outcomes uh, when, when they're considered social determinants of health. And so, uh, you know, those may be positive or negative uh, outcomes, but one other thing is uh, typically we're, we're talking about, especially with regards to health, something that's uh, a preventable difference or something that we can do something about. And oftentimes it comes down to what Keisha was talking about earlier, which is, you know, have we accepted this difference as being normal or is it something that we believe can be intervened upon? Um, and we believe that policies or something could be done differently to, to make it not look the way that it is. Um, and so you know, when, when you're encountering social determinants of health, you don't want to come at them from the perspective that just because, you know, that these things are just going to happen, like you should expect them, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it seems that social determinants of health haven't always been considered. You know, historically, we've taken a biological approach, but when we only approach that one dimension, we're missing out on a lot. Absolutely. So much of what we think about as far as science and our health 
you can understand how um, healthcare practices and policies and even your provider interaction can influence your health outcomes. If you think about the fact that um, when you look at diseases and conditions that we already have as a really good standard of care for, that's where you find big disparities in outcomes like cardiovascular disease, asthma, even things like um, treatable cancer in children and young adults. You will find greater mortality rates for African-Americans than you do for white people. And these are talking about treatable conditions. Same thing when it comes to maternal death. 60% of maternal death is preventable. And that's where you find those disparities, things that we know how to treat. Uh, and that's usually a sign that there's systemic racism, because if the system finds these death rates acceptable, then the system is allowing it to occur, which really set up, it set up a perfect storm for COVID to come in and really exasperate these disparities because these health conditions, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, these were conditions where you already had stark disparities and then COVID comes in and it just attacks these vulnerabilities in individuals but also in the systems and supports that are supposed to be in place so that folks don't fall through the cracks. Your point about these pre-existing conditions, you know, we've been talking about kind of buzzwords and myths surrounding this pandemic. And pre-existing conditions is something that we have heard on and on. People are at higher risk for hospitalization, you know, for death, for much more severe consequences if they can track COVID-19 and have pre-existing conditions. What can you tell us? I mean, this chapter starts out talking about like historically how African-Americans are predisposed to pre-existing conditions at a disproportionate rate. So can you speak to us kind of how this chapter opens in having that discussion? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's really more about how uh, the society in general exposes people, uh, black people in particular, to uh, these these pre-existing conditions. And so, you know, what we're what we're looking at and, and what we're thinking of is like, if there are things that are related to having worse COVID health outcomes or worse COVID outcomes, um, and we see a, a population of people who have higher prevalence of these things that that will predict more severe uh, COVID outcomes, why would anyone expect there to be a, a scenario in which we're, we're all in this together? Or why would you, you know, come at this and say, oh, well, you know, we're all at equal risk and we all have to do things because this is going to affect us all the same. And I think that that's, that's kind of, at first, how the pandemic was viewed. And I don't blame people for, for thinking that, you know, from the beginning. But, you know, as it continued and as we started learning more about how demographic characteristics and people's life circumstances and all were contributing to, to worse outcomes, you know, there were still a ton of people making the, the argument that we're all in this together and, and making it seem like the risk was going to be similar, despite, you know, so much evidence that uh, that black people uh, have a lot of the, the conditions that Keisha was describing earlier um, that, that put them at higher risk. Yeah. And I think you spoke to not just the pre-existing conditions, but we talked about high risk age groups. Can you speak a little more about what you were kind of revealing about high-risk age groups in terms of 
the initial risk and also even with vaccination? There were a lot of miscommunications. Uh, and some of it is, you know, when it came to COVID, the health profession, public health people, they were doing what we would call like uh they were building the plane while they were flying it when it came to the response to COVID. Unfortunately, they, were not, they weren't using lessons learned from prior pandemics globally, as well as other issues that had occurred in the U.S. So you have this conflict that's going on where, yes, if you look at the raw numbers, old people, older adults rather, uh, were at a much higher risk of death. They still are at a much higher risk of death. But what you find is that when you start disaggregating the data, which means when you divide the data and compare older white people, Black people, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and and as well as younger age groups, what you found is that the risk for death is definitely higher for Black people who are um, over the age of 65 or 70. But it's not the risk was still really high for those who were in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And it was actually pretty level. Um, And then there was a big jump. But that risk that you would see um, for that under 60 group for Black people was very close to what you find for white people over the age of 65. And that's where messaging comes into play. And getting back into the vaccine, if I tell you that older adults are most at risk for death and severe um, morbidity or illness, I would think that I'm not really, I don't really need to get the vaccine because you spent the last year telling me that older folks are at the biggest risk, people with pre-existing conditions. But the common public doesn't always understand what a pre-existing condition is. Um, some, Some folks in that age group don't know that they're diabetic or even when they're talking about obesity, they think that we're talking about people who have morbid obesity and not those that are just at that lower level of obesity. Uh, So that risk is overemphasized on one group. And then when you tell people to vaccinate, like, well, why am I gonna vaccinate for something that I'm not even really at risk for? It goes back to the pre-existing conditions thing that we were just talking about that you know, if Black people have a higher prevalence of this, and then also if they have a, a, a higher prevalence of these uh, pre-existing conditions that put them at greater risk at an earlier age, then their risk is going to be much greater than what they're being told is, you know. And so as they're following what the health messaging is, as they're doing what the government and what, you know, doctors and whoever else are telling them to do, their their risk isn't being mitigated to the same degree because those who are in the younger categories aren't really feeling like they're at risk, even though the data would show them, actually, if you are Black and you're 60 or 65 even, you know, your outcomes are starting to look closer and closer to, to the general population or to white people who are in their mid-70s. So, it's, it, you know, I'm not going to say that Black people are 10 years older or something like that, but... Some people will talk about the weathering. So, you know, you can talk about the weathering of Black women. You know, I make the argument that sometimes due to uh, stress, we age from the inside out. (laughs) And so, um, you know, Black people have this reputation of um, looking younger 
than they are. But if you look at our bodies, it's not, we just moisturize well, you know, stay out of the sun, do the things we're supposed to do. Um, but when you look at our, our health outcomes, it would suggest people who are much older than they are. And then also the other aspect, when it came to the vaccine rollout, uh, people of color in this country skew younger than white people, like the average ages. So if you take a state like Maryland, who held on to the 75 and older for a long time, uh, and when you look at the death rate for Black people, it's 70. So if you have, this is a priority group uh, for the vaccine is at 75, and we know that the typical uh, uh, age of death for Black people is before the age of 70, you're missing out on a lot of Black people who could get vaccinated. So when we talk about how the systems can also uh, support disparities, if you only assume that older populations are the most vulnerable, but don't look at some of these younger folks and not just um, death and hospitalization, we're talking about severe illness, long COVID, a disabling disease for a lot of people. So a lot of things were really, that were done to undermine uh, the seriousness of this disease uh, for people at a lot of different groups. And this is even for children. We find an undermining of, yes, there is a much lower risk of death, but there's just not enough known when it comes to uh, long-term effects on the heart and on the brain uh, that we're just really starting to discover with this disease that we, why would we want to expose children to it just because they're not going to die? It doesn't mean that they won't be affected by it. And it doesn't mean that their caretakers and providers, teachers, don't have to worry about these risks. So there were all these people who are affected that we're saying, oh, they're not at risk as if they're not around others who may be more at risk. I found the the piece about the priority age group recommendations especially striking because, like you said, you know, the CDC initially recommended a high priority group that extended beyond the life expectancy of Black Americans. And these are things that a lot of people don't know, but should. And I just found that particularly striking um, in this chapter. And so much of the the narratives around COVID, we have been so heavily dependent on healthcare messaging, on what the media is telling us, you know, things are changing every day. So, so much of our self-awareness of our risk level does come from what we're hearing from the outside. So y'all kind of make this recommendation, right? How how can we change the healthcare messaging moving forward? How can we Well we need to get we need to get messages from actual like from health from healthcare and health experts, public health experts specifically. Unfortunately, a lot of the health messages that we came either came, that we received either came from politicians or they were filtered by politicians so that even if it was coming from a health expert, it had to be approved politically, which made this a political disease instead of a public health crisis, which is what it was. And so we didn't learn our lessons from the HIV you know, epidemic. And we're, we're still not learning even from COVID. I mean, there were some things that were done well as far as community engagement and really connecting with churches and organizations and even developing whole new coalitions. That was excellent. We need to keep it up, especially partnerships when it comes to large academic medicine health systems. Um, but we've, we've dropped a lot of balls. These political factors that you're speaking to, 
I'm assuming would fall under the social determinants of health. Absolutely. So, you know, another kind of big message that has been a part, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was this idea of stay at home and how stay at home, you know, Paul, if we're all in this together, might look the same for everyone. But as you both have pointed out, it doesn't. Can you speak a little bit about that? It was interesting to get the, the messaging that people should stay at home or that they're safer at home. And one of the, the things that, you, that we're not taking into account is that some people's homes aren't really the safest place for them to be. Um, and, and I don't mean that from like, a, I'm not talking about like violence or, you know, all of these sorts of things. I'm, I'm talking about with regards to um, a, a disease that is able to be passed along through the air. You're talking about multi-generation families at times living together or people living in uh, situations where they're kind of stacked on each other to, to varying degrees. And, you know, what, what you find in, in those situations is that those people are going to be at risk and you telling them to kind of be there and just be around each other and to not go anywhere and that sort of thing, you're, you're kind of setting them up to interact with uh, others who, who might have COVID and to, to contract it. Uh, it also kind of it ignores the fact that there are a ton of people who didn't just have the option to to stay at home and to isolate and be away from other people. And so while I recognize that that's just one of the the messages that they were sending out there, uh, it's it's very important to to recognize, again, going back to this idea that we're that we're all in this together or that we're really not, that, you know, for some people, you know, you weren't going to have the choice to stay at home. And so them them saying, like, if you just stay at home, everybody will be safe isn't really a, a thing for you. Um, and so I, I have a, a pretty large family and, you know, there are lots of differences in, in income. There are lots of differences in jobs and, and that sort of thing. And so it was kind of interesting to think about those of us like me who could just be like, all right, I'll take my computer and do all my research at my apartment and I'll be fine. And then, you know, I had other family members who were maybe out for a week and had to go back and others who their job never stopped. <laughs> there is so much variability. And so coming out with the consistent message that if you stay at home, you'll be safe, that, that wasn't entirely true. Well, unless you were considered an essential worker, right? But yeah. Unless you were a physician or maybe a nurse, an essential worker was also a, dis a disposable worker. You know, so we saw that in the death rates when we looked at it by, looked at the research that showed by career, um, who was at risk. You you have the, the line cooks, right? So not the chefs, but the cooks at the restaurants when we were doing all this takeout and delivery those grocery store workers had a high rate of death. And obviously hospitals um, also had a high rate of death, but not as much for physicians as it was like LVNs, people who are direct care providers, but who are having long-term contact with patients. You know, this, this devastated folks who, this has been devastating for a lot of families. When we talk about, go back to talking about children and the reports of how many children have lost a parent, a grandparent, some caretaker? Uh, those numbers are incredibly high. And we know that those numbers are much higher for Black and Latino children, Pacific Islanders, that those and Native Americans, those numbers are incredibly high. And so even as we talk about jobs, uh, folks, we lost over a million people. 
Like, and I don't know if the gravity of that, I think we really stopped and thought about it when it was 100,000 people. But when it hit over a million, it seemed to not really mean a lot to folks. And the fact that most people know at least one person who has either was severely hospitalized or died, you know, really isn't understood or appreciated for the tragedy that it is in such a short time period. It's only two years. Yeah. Yeah. Essential workers, you know, we we think of frontline workers and there's the image of the frontline workers who are medical providers or teachers or, you know, a certain grouping of workers. And we also have essential workers, you know, and there's overlap there. But in the chapter, you spoke to people who didn't have access to testing during working hours. And if they took time to get tested, there's a risk. Quarantine is mandatory. But does your job actually allocate time for you to quarantine and return to your job? And paid time with that. Right. And paid time. <laughs> there are so many jobs out there with such restrictive time off and paid time off, especially. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I told you I have different family members who have different experiences than me. And so, you know, just from talking to them and trying to make recommendations for them that they do all the things that I'm doing while also not understanding that they they absolutely can't, you know, it took me some time to really process all of what was going on, you know, because I'm just like, hey, dad, my my dad works in a factory. I'm like, hey, dad, why don't you just do this? Why don't you go get testing? Why do you, you know, and I'm not thinking at the time, if he goes and gets testing, he doesn't really, you know, like he's not getting some of his hourly wages, you know, um, and I'm starting to think about that and also like seeing some of the stories coming in about like the meatpacking plants and these sorts of things where people are stacked on each other literally in these, you know, these lines where there's a conveyor belt and, you know, people are dying and they're not able to report the, the symptoms that they have because they don't they don't want to miss work from, from being sick, especially if it's just going to go away or if they think it might not be that severe or even if they do think it might be severe, but they know their family has to eat, especially during a time like this. There were a lot of threats to these sorts of essential workers early on. They, they put policies in place later to try to do protections to make sure people had places to live, to make sure people were getting, you know, these checks that were, you know, supposed to help them pay rent and, and, and these sorts of things. But it took a long time for that to hit and people were really struggling. And then it went away, right when, right when people said, right when like, oh, I could take a breath now, especially people who had multiple children, they're like, oh, I can take a breath. And yes. then it went away and it, you know. And it's all gone now and, 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 they're, and they're making it seem like bringing those things back are not really possible. And there are still people who, you know, we're going to keep seeing these same surges because this sort of environment, we, we have not figured out how to address it properly. And we do not incentivize these people to do anything other than sacrifice their health for the sake of all of us having convenient lives where we can get our things delivered, where we can get whatever we want without supply chain issues as quickly as we want it and that sort of thing. And I, and I think that, you know, part of the reason that, that maybe we haven't done much about it is that so many of us benefit from the type of work these people are doing that we have a hard time looking at ourselves and trying to do something to, to make these people's lives better and to really treat them as the essential workers that they are. Well, you know, I think a big difference is that the people who make decisions, they are not necessarily engaging outside of a service provider. 
someone who's providing a service, they're not truly engaging with folks who actually have to deal with the consequences of these policies, right? So you have to talk to your, you have to go to your family reunion, right? So <laughs> uh, you have to be able to, to talk to your cousins. And so you see the consequences, you feel it. I have family members who have died or who have been severely hospitalized. Uh, and it's not just COVID. It's all the things, the appointments that people could not make, the surgeries that had to be rescheduled, then rescheduled again. All these conditions that may be COVID or may be COVID adjacent or just affected by COVID because the system is so overloaded. All these things are impacted. You know, for a year, people can have funerals. Like, just like really thinking about that, that, you know, even there's so much of our day-to-day -day life that was affected and how we not only could not take care of our family members. And I think a lot of the people who made those decisions really and truly did not feel affected by it outside of, oh, that's a shame. You know, it's one thing when it's somewhat of an academic exercise of, oh, I'm reading the paper and I'm seeing this, oh, what a shame this is happening to all those people compared to you having to deal with a grieving family member or, you know, seeing a, a family member or yourself struggling. Uh, to deal with these issues and still try to work. Um, because even the folks who stayed at home, there was pressure to still produce, mm -hmm. right? To still produce as if nothing else was going on. So there's a lot of, early on in the pandemic, there was a push to reimagine a post-COVID world and a, and a push to disrupt systems but unfortunately, the, the systems that were happening before COVID affected us were working for a lot of people. And those folks are very invested in returning to business as usual. And we're hoping, you know, with our chapter in the book, that we can tell folks that that's not acceptable and it's time to go a different way. And that's really how I look at it. <laughs> I also feel like I saw a really cool TEDx talk on that. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe I was I was just surfing the web, and, and there it was. Um, you know, so oh, who gave that uh, TEDx talk? It may have been me. Uh, so I I would have to slip Paul a few dollars uh, in the mail <laughs> for his uh, promotion of my TEDx talk about you know what looks like normal on an ordinary day. And the way I look at it, what looks like normal is, is killing, you know, my friends and family. And mm -hmm. I don't find that to be acceptable. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a, this chapter, we touch on a lot of things and it's good that we are at the beginning of the book because we really wanted to tie how all these social determinants, economics, education, employment, uh, environment, all those things affect health. And all of these things were impacted by COVID. So we looked at our chapter as somewhat setting the tone, which was also a challenge for us because we wanted to talk about all the things. But this is more of a like a survey. Like these are all the these are not all, but these are a lot of things that affected how COVID panned out. But the other chapters go into more detail about some of these education economic issues that also occurred. This book is such 
a great call to action. It's not a back to normal that we need. It is a it is a new normal that in, involves a lot of change, a lot of necessary change. This chapter, like you said, it's it sets the tone for the rest of the book. The way the chapter is organized is you're you're like, oh, you think that's it? No, there's more. And and even within those subtopics, you know, one that comes to mind is the safer at home, stay at home narrative. It wasn't just here's what it looks like to stay at home. You were saying, here's what, you know, the average home environment looks like. Here's what a neighborhood would look like. And then here are the environmental hazards that a lot of these communities were predisposed to because of systemic racism. There were all these points of entry into each of these sections of the chapter. And I, I thought it was just so, it was compelling and it was so well written. So, and, and you learn a lot and, Thank you. and you back it up. Like everything, I mean, it's, it's, my word is striking for this for this chapter. Um, so, Thanks. and I think one of the the other kind of myths that you covered that we haven't talked about is the vaccine. You know, you spoke to vaccine hesitancy and getting vaccinated versus getting educated. Uh, can you speak a little more to that? Yes. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always frustrated. <laughs> And uh, one of the things I was frustrated about is that there was all this hand-wringing about, oh, you know, Black people don't trust health systems. They don't trust the government. How are we going to convince them to get the vaccine? And really focusing a lot of effort on how do we educate Black people when, if you look at the early numbers, there really wasn't a very big difference between the hesitancy of Black people and the hesitancy of white people. So if we were to look at uh, December of 2020, when it was, the vaccines were first getting approved, there was really just a very slight, it was like two, 3% difference uh, between Black and white people. The difference is, is the way that the rollout happened, it prioritized people who were more likely to be white. Uh, so you had people over 75, physicians uh, and nurses, and then even teachers. And so what happened is that the way that the way that you got people to want to be okay with vaccination, and this is true for all groups, is that they had to know someone who was vaccinated and was okay. So instead of making sure that the people, that black people who were more than willing and waiting to get vaccinated got those early, they weren't. There was just this focus on educating. And so the problem is, is that they, at the same time that they were focusing on educating those folks who were also doing miseducation campaigns, were also sitting, sending that competing information out. And meanwhile, no one knew someone who had received the vaccine. So if all you're getting is a whole bunch of information that is very distant and not a personal connection, once it was time, and then you also have the conflicting information coming from the CDC and other like, oh, well, you're not really in a high risk group. The, the emphasis was on let's give information to people of color instead of saying, let's get the people who are most willing, let's go you know, with the low hanging fruit first and get them to also say, I'm okay, so that we can spread it out. And, and that's really where I get to, that's where I was like, okay, there's emphasis on educating black people while we're getting the shots in the arms of white people. Mm. Yeah, and and to extend that point, you know, what, what we're looking at is, you know, uh, black people being presented with this idea that they're not really old enough to get these things. 
nor are they really smart enough to know that they should get these things, nor are they essential enough uh, to get these things. And by these things, I mean the vaccine. And so, you know, all of this is, is building to, you know, the same sort of, to, to the same sorts of systemic disparities that, that we see. So now it's like not only are they, uh, is it disparate in the, the outcomes at the beginning or, you know, the, the sorts of risk at the beginning, but as we're watching this sort of thing play out and be implemented and, you know, this, this potential solution to, you know, minimizing severe risk is, is coming out, people can't really get out of their own way. Uh, they're, mm. they're, uh, the, the system can't get out of its own way to implement policies that, that help these people because they never have really tried to, you know, to do that or to, to or they've never been able to do it effectively, should I say. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot to, to factor in as well as like, where was some of the, the where were some of these same efforts in educating uh, other people from other groups? Because I would say black people weren't the only ones who were hesitant or that sort of thing. And, and honestly, it's less impactful to the broader society if we are because we're a smaller p- proportion. Were they were they addressing uh, white people and white people's hesitancy to the same degree? Well, white people were more likely to be in the group of never, you know, never. That's yeah. I was about to get on that too. Like, you know, there were black people who could be convinced if you talk to them, and and there are also black people could and talk to them, yeah, and talk to them like like they had sense, and that they were coming that these were when they were hesitant that it was a rational reason for them to be hesitant. Like you have to also acknowledge that it's rational for folks to be like, wait, you, you, you got this, like this thing just, we just found out about this, you know, 10 months ago. And then now all of a sudden there's a vaccine. And especially if you think about AIDS has been around popularly known for the last 40 years and there's no vaccine for that. And so you're going to tell me that they had 40 years and, you know, and people don't understand the way science works, that this was building on existing science, but you know, you have to think about like, what are the rationales that people are using? And if you're just saying, well, just take it, just trust me on this. Well, you haven't been too trustworthy before this. Why should I take your word for it? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and related to a lot of that, like there was a lot of talk about Tuskegee and everybody's just like, oh, black people don't trust the medical field and medical profession and science because of Tuskegee. And it's like, uh, Tuskegee was a long time ago. There are black people who don't trust it because of that, but it, it doesn't take that, you know, like I, I can literally, and I'm not going to go into to detail on this stuff uh, right now, but I can literally think of like five members of my family who have died in que- for questionable reasons while doing what should be normal medical procedures. And thinking about that sort of thing, even with as much knowledge as I have and as many doctors as I know, and as many as I've, you know, interacted with in all kinds of positive ways, I'm still a bit nervous so now I'm trying to think about like for, for these other people, like why are you acting like this is a historical thing and it isn't really present? And why do you expect them to just get over it and, and let these shots happen and, and go about their lives rather than, you know, being willing to just sit there and explain to them and have people who they trust explain to them what's going on rather than using kind of the the, the racist tropes and stereotypes and trying to use uh, those sorts of things to to prompt people to do things. And I'm not going to elaborate on that because I'm not trying to get in trouble. Uh, Keisha, you know what I'm talking about, though. <laughs> <laughs> look, Don't you do know, it. Even, <laughs> Don't like, do it. even with Tuskegee, right? So even if we were to say it was Tuskegee, most t- Tuskegee oftentimes is misunderstood. Um, Tuskegee was about withholding 
medical known medical treatment versus the vaccine hesitancy is about a treatment that has a, a, a great deal of effectiveness and trying to get that to people. So that that's something that I, I do like to make that distinction about. But just like Paul said, you know, yes, we can talk about Tuskegee, but we also have to talk about what people experience in their own lives or, you know, they go take when when their self-advocacy is seen as aggression or non-compliance. Those things have to be considered. What's happening in your own health system? Uh, who are the gatekeepers that may interfere with health care and contributing to that distrust? And and are these people willing to, to challenge uh, the, the status quo, which might say that if I run into a Black patient who I say, hey, you should get a vaccine, and they say, nah, I don't really want to do that, you know, some doctors will just be like, well, you know, I heard that they they were less likely to want to do it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let it go. And others will be like, oh, well, can you tell me more about why you're doing, you know, why you're saying that? And here's some of the things I know as your trusted healthcare professional, like, here's some things I can say to you, you know. And this was especially true for pregnant people. Yeah, that, yes. Yes, definitely. That was Which something else we didn't, we didn't really get. We didn't get a chance That's to really talk yeah, about too much. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and, and part of it is that it was still evolving mm-hmm. uh, while we were writing uh, is, is about pregnant people and the, and the level of risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like it took about a year before people really understood. They knew that they, we all know that pregnant people are immunocompromised when because you know you got a, a whole other human in you right sometimes in my case two humans <laughs> inside of you um, so your body is doing a lot um, and it doesn't really need the interference of a vi- of a virus while it's doing this very important work but the miscommunication the the misinformation about the vaccine the fact that the system did not test, when they were doing uh, clinical trials, that they did do clinical trials on pregnant people. So you can't even say that this is FDA approved during pregnancy, even though we know how risky it was for pregnant folks to have to go through a pregnancy and get COVID and the risks that it, it provided to the parent as well as to the infant. Mm-hmm. Uh, is I mean, the, the risk for stroke, for death, for both baby and parent were incredibly high. And those are the things that aren't really understood as far as the general population. Because the people were saying, if you have, if you get vaccinated while you're pregnant and you have a boy child and you get the vaccine, they're going to be impotent. Like, do you understand? But most people, well, that's the thing. There's an assumption that people understand biology. (laughs) And, you know, as someone who uh, has a good idea about biology, I'm always stunned by how folks don't understand the way the reproductive system works, even though there's always talk about the reproductive system. And considering how how much the society uh, puts an emphasis on sex, you would think that there would be a better understanding of reproductive health. But oftentimes those reproductive concerns come in for vaccines for adults, as well as those who are carrying babies. Obviously, that's not true. I'm thinking we need a pandemic divide part two because there's Absolutely. unfortunately a lot on Absolutely. the cutting room floor. You try to floor. be concise. You try to be concise, but there Definitely. are a lot of rabbit holes that could go that we could go into. Well, all all very worthy and important. Yes. You know, worthy of a deep a deep dive. You know, the chapter 
closes with some recommendations, some points. I think one of the big things we've talked about is kind of messaging and information around healthcare. The last lines of the chapter were just, here's my word again, striking. But, um, you know, you wrote, we must recognize that in the first year and a half of the pandemic, if Black Americans died of COVID-19 at the same rate as white Americans, more than 44,000 Black people would still be alive. This had me thinking, like we've mentioned a couple times, we're still in this. So where do we go from here? Yeah, you know, hearing that number again, especially knowing this summer, you know, in the United States, we've lost what, 30, 40,000 people to COVID uh, just this summer. So we are still, like you said, very much into it. You know, we really have to really rethink about what's possible. Uh, a lot of how we do things differently is really breaking what we see as the norms and saying, well, just because this is all this is our normal because it's always existed this way doesn't mean that it has to continue to exist and perform in these ways. So part of it is just saying we're, we're not going to stop with impossible. We're going to just keep on going till we start getting the results that we want. And the results that I want and I, hope, I know you want and Paul wants is that we all have a shot at a healthy life. We need to start asking equity-focused questions at the governmental level. I don't think we do that often, which is why it takes a while before anyone thinks, even for a second, that we might need to disaggregate data, that we might need to think about who's being affected more and think about the possibility even beforehand, before we have to watch it happen to you know thousands or millions of people, just thinking beforehand, hey, maybe this could affect people differently based on different social factors that we keep seeing over and over again affecting people. And so to me, being more equity focused, not only in the questions that we ask and our plan to, to answer those questions, but also more equity focused in the solutions. So thinking about how can we get solutions out here? How can we help people out um, who, again, are going to be most affected by, by things? Um, and I think we struggle with that, especially in a country that, you know, people are, are often thinking about themselves at times or thinking about like, well, what's equality look like and how do we all get the same thing? And if we don't all get the same thing, then things must not be fair. And, you know, one, one example of this is uh, unrelated to COVID, but, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot at the, at the Cook Center about like uh, student loans and, and some of those sorts of things. And so I'm not going to comment on whether $10,000 is enough or you know, like, I don't, I don't want to get into that sort of fight, but I think that, you know, there being a discussion about how we shouldn't do anything for student loan relief because it doesn't help all Americans because some don't go to college. Uh, it doesn't help people who've already paid off their loans and that sort of thing. I'm like, I hear you. And why can't we do things that, that do target those people and help them as well as doing this thing to help these people? You know, I think we always have this zero sum game and we always have this focus on equality and we don't stop to think enough about how to target things. And I, I think that, that that's going to continue to work yes. to our detriment. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's not a trade-off. You know, but it's not mutually exclusive. So helping one person doesn't mean that other folks can't also be helped or that other people don't need help if you help one group. 
You know, there's one other thing about the disparities mm-hmm. I wanted to bring up, and that is um, besides for an assumption of a biological inferiority or some type of biological flaw that people assume that Black people have, there's also an assumption of just irresponsible Black people. Oh, young Black people are partying. That's why they're dying more from COVID. Um, Or if they didn't get COVID, they would just shoot each other. Like these types of ideas of um, almost, not even almost, deserving to get sick and die. So they're not doing the right thing. So they could wear a mask if they want to. Uh, they can stay home if they want to, but they're, they're they're just out there being irresponsible. So that's why they're dying more. And and it, you see this for COVID, you see this for heart disease, you know, for hypertension, all of these things. There's always an assumption that it's an individualized behavioral aspect. But when you start comparing uh, the behaviors of white people and the behaviors of black people and their and similar behaviors rather. Uh, that the effects, the the return on investment uh, is not the same for Black people as it is for white people. And we see this in wealth, and we also see this in health, that even when Black people are engaging in healthy behaviors, uh, that what we get back in return is not the same as far as great health. And a lot of it has to do with the health systems that we're in, because we don't get the response from providers as we should when we make, you know, we make our concerns. So so these are the things we have to, the other myths that have to happen in order for equity to occur is that we have to recognize that this is not a biological flaw. We have to recognize that Black people are not irresponsible. And we have to recognize where the systems are in place that are actually an impediment to health outcomes. Absolutely. And there is a lot of great and important work to be done. I think this chapter and this conversation have been just Amazing. I, I've loved hearing more about your work and your expertise. And I think it's a brilliant call to action. Yeah, gotta do the work. You gotta show up ready every to put day. In the work, so thank you for your time and for letting us yes. uh, talk about this chapter. It's very important to us. And, uh, you know, the people who are Absolutely. reflected in it are very important to us. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Keisha Benley-Edwards and Dr. Paul Robbins for joining us on Voices in Equity from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. To learn more and order the book, Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Maddie Braxic, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.